Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. It's a privilege and a blessing to be here with you again this morning. Do you ever catch yourself just thinking, like we just sung in that song, full atonement, can it be? Can it really be that my sin can be fully and completely atoned for? And then our response, hallelujah, what a savior. Picture with me this morning a wedding ceremony. Perhaps you're attending the wedding of a friend. The preacher has delivered an eloquent, thought-provoking, and practical sermon about how a married couple should act. You have gone through the receiving line, and you're now entering the reception area. It's a large room. Most of the guests are already there, having gone through the receiving line ahead of you. And you walk through, you get your meat and your cheese and your lemonade, perhaps, and you begin to head toward your seat. Most people are sitting down, although a number are standing here and there visiting, catching up with acquaintances, and there's a pleasant, low roar of many people chatting and enjoying each other's company. And this particular couple that is married has a love for coffee, and to show her love for her new husband, the bride has purchased matching mugs, and upon entering the reception, they stop to get coffee prior to sitting down. And as they begin to walk across the room toward the bridal table, the bride stops and takes a step back to allow someone to walk by. And in the process, bumps her husband's full cup of coffee and spills it all over his white shirt. And the groom erupts in anger. He yells at his wife for not watching what she is doing. He ends his angry tirade by forcefully taking his mug that she had just given him and smashing it against the floor where it breaks into a thousand pieces. By now, the large room of guests is completely silent. Everyone is watching. What will happen next? Everyone holds their breath. Will someone confront the angry groom? Should he apologize to his wife in front of everyone? Would that even make a difference? He can't take his words back. Their relationship will never be the same, and the mug that she purchased for him can never be repaired. Now you might think that would never happen. But it does happen. It did happen. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I want us to think for a moment of man's first sin in the garden. Not unlike the story that I just told. The garden is a beautiful place. It's a perfect place. Every being in the garden, the animals, the plants, the birds... Adam and Eve are enjoying each other's company and enjoying 
the company of Almighty God. And as we look at Genesis chapter 3, we see the first temptation that's recorded in Scripture. And we can analyze this thinking about why the serpent talked to Eve. We can talk about the silence of Adam. We can talk about the way that the serpent questioned God and his goodness. And we can talk about how the temptation was designed to appeal to Adam and Eve, to their carnal nature. And those would not be bad discussions. Those would be good conversations to talk about, good and valid. But I want us to think about, just like the first story that I told, everything is perfect. Everything is perfect. And how suddenly the warm, friendly, good world that God created is forever changed. Forever changed. And it's as if the universe completely shifts, shocked that the created would rebel against the creator, that mankind would question God's goodness. Adam and Eve, completely innocent, completely without sin, completely enjoying God, each other, and the garden that they lived in. But sin has now entered and can never be done away with. It can never be taken back, never erased. And so for a moment, picture with me, as all the universe holds its collective breath, what will God do? The birds stop singing, the animals stop playing, the fish stop swimming. Everyone watches. What will God do? As God comes back into the garden, the animals, the trees, the stars, and the invisible host of angels watches intently. Perhaps they are partly hoping that Adam and Eve can hide forever that God will never find them, and perhaps hoping that God will find them and just get this over with. How will God respond to this sin, this blatant act of rebellion? God is holy. God is just. God is perfect. Not only that, but he knows all things and controls all things. What will he do? Will he give Adam and Eve a second chance to stay in the garden? But that can't be. They have sinned. Will he just completely destroy his whole creation and start over? Or will he just abandon his creation and let them reap the consequences of their own choices? Neither of these options are ideal, but both seem consistent with God's justice. And so God does come into the garden and God meets out justice. The serpent will crawl on his belly and eat dust and be at odds with humankind forever. The woman will now experience pain and childbearing and will be under the leadership of the man. The man would now need to experience painful toil and sweat to make ends meet. And in addition to this, the man and the woman would be banished from the garden that was so carefully created for their enjoyment and to meet their needs. They cannot take back their actions. They cannot take back their words. 
the glass mug is broken into a thousand pieces and can never be repaired. And the whole universe knows this. But there's a glimmer of hope. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the first prophecy of the Messiah, the one that we would call the Messiah. I don't know what Adam and Eve called him initially when they talked about him. But in speaking to the serpent, God says, He, the offspring of the woman, shall crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will crush his heel. And so perhaps Adam and Eve talked about this offspring, this person, this man as the serpent crusher. When will God send the serpent crusher? We have the foretelling of the Messiah. We do not have the timing, but it's a promise nonetheless. And so I'm guessing that Adam and Eve are waiting anxiously. Will it be one of our sons or perhaps a grandson or great-grandson? When will this person come? And then we have the story of the Old Testament. And this morning I'd like to look through a number of stories in the Old Testament And for those of you taking notes, I'm thinking particularly of the children, we're going to look at five sections this morning in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the law, the judges, the priests, the kings, and the prophets. The law, the judges, the priests, the kings, and the prophets. So first of all, we look at the law. And we are familiar with the dramatic story of how God rescued his people from the land of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea. And now God has rescued his people and he has them alone with him in the desert where he can share with them his covenant and his law and they can learn to live with him forever. And we see the law in Exodus chapters 20 20 through 23 and the covenant is confirmed in Exodus 24. And I want to look at a few verses in Exodus 24 Verses 9 through 11. I'm not sure if I ever quite noticed this before. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. This is right after Moses had confirmed the covenant with the people with blood. Verse 9, it says, Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. So there's 74 men, including Moses and Aaron, going up again to God in the mountain. And get this, in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, they, they saw him to the extent that they could describe some things about him. There was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And I believe what it's saying there is that just like the sky is blue, there was a paved work of sapphire stone that God was standing on that was blue. I find it interesting here, they don't really describe God. I think words fail, but they describe what he was standing on. And check out verse 11. And, up, and upon the nobles of Israel, of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand, saying God did not do anything against the men that were there. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. I believe, outside perhaps of the story of Abraham, this is the first time that God eats and drinks with mankind. 
What a wonderful time. They can finally learn what God wants them to do. They can learn how to take hold of the provisions that God has provided for their sins. They can live with him. He can be their God, and they can be their people, and they can relate to God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But this era of law did not bring about lasting change. It did not bring about change at all. Right after this, we have the story of the golden calf. And the time in the wilderness is characterized by disobedience, ungratefulness, and downright rebellion. Even Moses himself is not allowed to see the promised land because of his own disobedience to God. And so the time of Moses and the law, which began with such promise, ends with no change in mankind. Next, we have the time of the judges. We recently looked at the book of Judges over a number of sermons, but I think it's worth just briefly looking at this again. This era again begins with promise. The children of Israel have finally conquered the land of Canaan. This is the promised land that's given to them by God Almighty. Now they have a land to serve him. They can drive out all the evil influences around them and live lives consecrated to him, consecrated to God alone. But this time is also characterized by failure. Right from the start, the people fail to drive out the other nations that were there before them. And from time to time, these nations rise up and they uh, rise up against Israel and control them for long periods of time. And God raises up judges to win military victories and rescue his people. But the people continue to fall back into sin and idolatry in in the cycle begins again. Even the judges themselves, the leaders, are characterized by idolatry, power struggles, and misunderstanding of God's law. And so, the time of the judges that began with such promise ends with no real change. A disappointing time of gross idolatry and sin. Next, we have the priests. The people needed a leader who understood God and what he wanted and expected. Someone who could lead them in worship, lead them in sacrifice, And so, we have Eli. God provided Eli a leader, a priest for them. Eli was a good man, and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests and could follow in his footsteps in faithfully leading the people. But there's a problem here. Eli's sons, it says, were sons of Belial. That means they were scoundrels, wicked, ungodly. They took advantage of their position of power and leadership, They slept around with women at the tabernacle and used their position to gain wealth. It's becoming abundantly clear that Eli's sons were unfit for the priesthood. And it got to the point that when the Israelites were in trouble against the Philistines, the elders of Israel did not seek counsel from God, and they did not seek counsel from Eli, but rather decided to take matters into their own hands and take the ark into battle. The magic token that could somehow give them victory. But then the unthinkable happened, and we have perhaps one of the saddest days in Israel's history in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And it talks about, in battle, what happened. Eli was 98 years old, sitting on a chair, waiting to hear what happened that day in the battle. And the news was worse than he could have imagined. Israel fled before the Philistines. Many of the Israelites were killed. Not only that, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in battle. And not only that, but the ark of God has been captured by the enemy. 
And when Eli hears about the ark of God, he fell over backward off his chair and died. And so the time of Eli ends in complete disarray. The leader is dead. There is no successor. The ark of God is no longer with Israel. God's presence is no longer with them. But God still has a plan, and Samuel begins leading the people. But Samuel's sons turn out no better than Eli's sons, using their position of power and influence to gain wealth dishonestly, accept bribes, and to preside over cases based on how it benefited them rather than on what was right and wrong. And so the time of the priests ends with the people begging for a king. They wanted to be like the nations around them that had a king to lead them into their battles. This would give them the benefit of having a clear successor. Each time a king would die, his son would take on the mantle of leadership and become the next king. And God leads Samuel to appoint their first king of Israel, King Saul. And that takes us to the time of the kings. And again, the time of the kings begins with promise as young King Saul takes the mantle of leadership. He is the type of man that you want on your team leading your organization. He's handsome and likable. He's a head taller than everybody else. But it's, it's his humility that really stands out. Not only that, but this man can lead us. He can get together an army and fight, as he showed in rescuing Jabesh from the Ammonites. But then things go terribly wrong again as Saul begins to take things into his own hands, things that were to be done only by the priests. And Saul's humility gives way to pride. But God has another man in mind to become king, a man after his own heart. And this man, David, through years of difficulty, would learn to serve and to trust God. And this became apparent as he began to reign. But even this good king had faults, adultery and murder being among them. And the time of the kings would continue beyond David and beyond Solomon for about 200 years in Israel and about 350 years in Judah. And if you were to keep score, you would likely say that Israel had about 19 bad kings and maybe one good king. And Judah had maybe 13 bad kings and seven good kings. So was the time of the kings a smashing success? Hardly. You might rather say that the kings led the people more towards sin and idolatry than toward God. And finally, we have the prophets. During the same time as the time of the kings, we have the prophets who prophesied to God's people. And many of their writings are recorded in the Old Testament. Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Obadiah, among others. How successful were they? Did the people listen? By and large, it appears that the majority of the people and their leaders of this time did not heed the warnings of the prophets and instead hated them and killed them and persecuted them for their message. And so we can look back all the way to the original sin of man in the Garden of Eden. And we've looked at various time frames and leadership structures that God used to bring his people back to him. The time of the law, the judges, the priests, the kings, and the prophets. 
But now I want to fast forward just a few hundred years and look at another man. Look at the man, Jesus. We've looked at five sections, law, judges, priests, kings, and prophets. And I want to look briefly this morning at how Jesus perfectly fills each of those roles in a way that the men of the Old Testament could not. First of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And we could look at Matthew chapter 5. Turn there. Matthew chapter 5, we'll look at verses 17 through 20. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that? Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And then in verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law, but not abolish it, not destroy it? What does it mean that your, right, your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? What was wrong with the, righteous, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? We could turn to Galatians chapter 3 and look at how it talks about the law as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, or more, more literally, a tutor. Before Christ, we needed the supervisor, the supervision of a tutor. After Christ, we no longer need that supervision, the supervision of the law to obey God. Rather, we know his law and his expectations for us and how we should live. Salvation does not come, you see, by attempting to meet those expectations, but rather by accepting Christ and what he has done for us. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Secondly, Jesus is the eternal judge. When Jesus came the first time, he made it very clear that he did not come to judge. We can see that in John twelve forty-seven. Jesus says, I did not come to judge. But Jesus will return as judge. I won't go into the scriptures for this, but we, and we know that God will judge. But scripture also talks about Jesus judging as well. And we can have confidence that God and that Jesus will judge rightly. We see that in Acts, Romans, 2 Timothy, and other scriptures. Jesus is the eternal judge. Thirdly, Jesus is the great high priest. Marcus read about this a bit in Hebrews chapter 9. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll look at a few verses there. Look at a few concepts there out of that chapter. As we see in the Old Testament and throughout the Gospels and Acts, the priest oftentimes, or should I say sometimes, would use their power and their authority to accept bribes, to control the people, and to gain power, all for themselves and for their own honor. But in the book of Hebrews The description of Jesus as high priest culminates in chapter 9, and there's a comparison and a contrast here of earthly high priests and Christ, the eternal high priest. 
somebody mentioned this in a uh, testimony this morning. I don't remember who it was. But the idea that in Hebrews it talks about how we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And the verse before that tells us why. We can do that because Jesus understands us. Because he gets us. Because he empathizes with us. Twice in the book of Hebrews it talks about how our high priest can empathize with our weaknesses because he was like us. A couple other contrasts that we find in chapter 9 and elsewhere throughout the book. Earthly high priest served in an earthly tabernacle. Jesus serves in one not made with hands. Earthly high priests regularly offered sacrifices, and every year they would go into the inner room, the holy place, once per year to offer a sacrifice for sins. Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. Earthly high priests needed to sacrifice for their own sins. Jesus had no sin. Earthly high priests took the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus took his own blood. The blood of bulls and goats covered sins. Jesus' blood removes sin. Think about it this way. The blood of Jesus is so potent that it can do for 8 billion people today what the hundreds of thousands of gallons of blood all throughout the Old Testament, blood of bulls and goats, could not do. One drop of Jesus' blood is so potent that it can do today for 8 billion people what hundreds of thousands of gallons of blood of bulls and goats could not do throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus is the great high priest. Not only is he the great high priest, but he's also the sacrifice that the high priest gives. Fourth, Jesus is the king of kings. First Timothy calls him the only potentate or ruler, the king of kings. Revelation 17, 14 says, The lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Revelation nineteen sixteen, He has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. But Jesus is unlike, completely unlike the kings of the Old Testament in many ways. And and two ways I'll just point out here. One, his reign is eternal. He needs no successor. There's no concern that when this king's reign ends, what will his son do? How will his son be different? Will his son also be a good king? No concern about that at all. And secondly, he leads people to righteousness and not to idolatry. And fifth, Jesus is that prophet. Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.17, where God says that he will raise another prophet like Moses, whom the people should listen to. But Jesus, again, is different from the prophets in the Old Testament, because not only does he speak the words of God, but he is the word of God. Not only does he speak the word of God, he is the word of God. And so, in our own lives, at times we may desire the structures of the Old Testament. But remember, the law does not change hearts. It does not save. And remember that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of 
of the Pharisees and the scribes, they had an outward righteousness through Christ. We are to have an inward righteousness. And Jesus goes into more detail in Matthew chapter 5 about how it's not just what you do, but it's what's in your heart and it's what you think. The scribes and Pharisees quibbled over small things but missed big things like justice and righteousness and mercy. And we can see that in Matthew 23, 23. And since we know the law cannot change hearts and it does not change our hearts, we may wish for a strong leader to help us fight the devil and fight evil, like the leaders in the book of Judges. And just like in the book of Judges, hardcore fighting against the devil and against sin may produce results for a time, but not in the long term. So then perhaps we long for a spiritual leader like the priests of the Old Testament. But we have seen spiritual leaders of our time come and go. We have been disappointed when they fall and when their children are not suitable successors for their mission and their ministry. And so we say we need a king, one who can lead us into battle and one whose son can lead us after the king is no longer here. But earthly kings and leaders tend toward pride, greed, and idolatry. And so we find ourselves disappointed once again. If only we think we had a prophet, one who could speak straight and speak the truth, then we would listen and follow. But earthly prophets disappoint as well. They sometimes say their own words instead of God's words. And sometimes in their zeal, they turn people away from God. And even when they speak truth, many times we don't listen anyway. So this morning, I want to present to you Jesus Christ, the one who promises to write his law on our hearts. Not an external law that we have to somehow force ourselves to do, but to write his law directly onto our hearts. The one who will return to justly judge the alive and the dead, the great high priest who gets us, who empathizes with us, not just sympathizes, not just looks on and says, I feel sorry for you, but who is actually there, who lived what you're living, who understands what it's like to be human and therefore can empathize with us. Not only that, but he lives forever and he sanctifies us with his own blood. Jesus is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the word of God himself. And so, looking all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and considering the very first story about the groom at his wedding reception, who can never put that mug back together, who can never take back those words, who can never mend his marriage. And looking into your own heart and your own life this morning and seeing the things that you have done and the regrets that you have and the things that are broken today because of things that you have done, things that can never be mended, and the way that your life can never be put, be put back together again and can never be made right again. But we have one 
Jesus Christ, the perfect antidote to sin, the perfect antidote to the ways that we have messed up our lives, and perhaps the most marvelous of all, he asks us, no, he commands us to commune with him this morning and with each other. Let's enjoy that opportunity again today. Kneel with me for prayer.